So thanks everyone for joining us and listening. I'm Horam Naik. I'm a lawyer with a somewhat unusual path. I began working as a lawyer when I was 31. And before that, I never made more than $40,000 in a year, just living all over the country and working a bunch of different jobs. Uh, I grew up pretty modestly and paid most of my way through college. And I had a full scholarship for law school. So I had a mixture of challenges and privilege. Uh, So after law school, I joined big law and I took my finances very seriously. So now I have the freedom to pursue my interests, which includes having conversations like this. And I'm here because I wrote a post on LinkedIn about this journey and, and talked directly about the value in taking control of your finances and what that, the opportunities that gives you, which is, I think, something that's just not discussed enough, and specifically in law. And the post really resonated with a lot of people. It got 2,500 plus reactions, 2,200,000 plus views, which is a lot for me. And, and it made me realize I had something to share about finances that it could help others learn from as well. And that's why I want to talk to Adam Gill. Uh, I've known Adam for a while since his time uh, at Gershon Keller, which was then the world's world's largest private fund focused on legal and regulatory risk. Um, And then he joined Burford from there. And now he's founder and managing director at GLS Capital, which is one of the world's largest private investment firms focused on legal and regulatory risk. Uh, And before his you know, time in litigation finance, Adam was a partner at Kirkland Ellis, which is, you know, for those that don't know, one of the biggest firms in the world. And he practiced patent litigation there. Adam and I have known each other since his time at Gershon Keller. When I- sure. So that was actually before, before Kirkland. Mm. That was, that was when I was at um, Deckert. So I started off my career as a young lawyer in, um, in the Palo Alto office of a, of a, of a firm, and our office eventually became uh, Decker. They acquired us. And there was a, um, uh, an older attorney, and he was uh, right around the time I was leaving, he, uh, which, wasn't, which was a year or two into my career, uh, he, he was leaving as well. I was going to Chicago, and he was uh, retiring. And uh, you know, he was kind of a, a, a legend in the office and in the Valley, I'm told. And um, I went up to him, and I asked him, you know, what advice would you have for a young lawyer? Uh, what would you tell yourself if you were me? And he said, master your craft. And I said, well, that's great. But, you know, how do I do that? What, what's the best advice for that? Then he said, make sure that you understand uh, what you're doing and why you're doing it, uh, you know, at all times. And if you don't understand, ask. Uh, and so I thought that was really helpful because it allows you, <clears throat> it allowed me over the course of my career to understand pers- the perspective um, larger perspective and understand what we are trying to accomplish so that when I would have ideas that might help us achieve that, that, that were not part of the task I was given, or when things came up that I was doing that seemed to be not furthering that or even, you know, adverse to that, I could raise my hand and ask somebody, hey, you know, should we do, be doing it a different way or I have an idea or something like that? And that's, I think, a way to, a really, to really add value. Uh, and I was talking about this with a partner later in my career at uh, at Kirkland. I was still an associate at this time. And, and uh, the partner told me, yeah, if you just sit in your office and you do what I ask you, you're pretty much worthless to me because I need people with judgment. I need people that can operate independently. And, and that's what it takes. So I think it was overall, it was, it was good advice. And, you know, it's so interesting, you know, what you're doing and why. And I guess that that kind of, you know, leads me to ask you about, you know, why you pursued big law. And, you know, there's lots of reasons why someone might enter big law, you know, for 
the money, the status, the type of work you're doing, the career options? You know, how did you think about it at the time? But why you enter big law? So, you know, on the subject of what you're doing and why. Sure. So I grew up in Washington, D.C. or a suburb right outside Washington, D.C. And so that's a town filled with uh, with lawyers and, and politics. And um, um, I saw politics as not, not quite as skills based and uh, the law more, you know, based in the ability to actually do difficult things um, based on, you know, things that you learn rather than backslapping and that sort of thing. Not to denigrate politics, but I just felt like it was a more... Um, a more predictable path for someone who wanted to work on kind of intellectual merit. And so, uh, so, you know, I, I always thought, you know, being a lawyer was a good opportunity for a profession. I didn't see, you know, there were no manufacturing jobs around where I grew up. Uh, there was not a whole lot of industry, the, the, the kind of defense industry in the technical corridor that's now there didn't exist at the time. And so it was kind of a natural for me to go into law. And once I did that, um, you know, going to big law, going into big law, you know, the money is uh, certainly helpful. I had law school loans and wanted to pay them off. I had a young family, you know, you want to get started and get on your way towards financial independence. Um, and, and some of the prestige, but not so much, you know, based in ego, but based in um, the ability to open doors for the next move, right? The ability to go you know, somewhere else where you want to go freedom, I guess, in a professional sense rather than a, in a financial sense. But I perceived that as being, you know, the benefits that big law provided for me. And so when you were down that path, you know, what was there an aha moment? Was there some moment that was really an inflection point? You're thinking, saying, hey, I've got to do something different here. I've got to go my own way on this and, and figure out how to take control of my finances. Was there a moment like that for yourself? There, there wasn't one specific moment. It was a process. Um, and it, it was really two things. Um, one was as I, as I approach partnership by, at Kirkland Ellis, um, there certainly is a gate every year. If you, um, if you have bad reviews, they will, you know, uh, basically tell you and show you the door in any year of your career. It's not just when you're up for partner. Um, and that, that's, I think that's, uh, you know, ultimately a good thing because if you're not doing well in year two, they'll tell you and give you time to fix it. And if you're not doing well where you should be in year four or five, six, the same thing. And so for the firm that, that re results in a, um, in a, in a highly skilled, kind of uniformly workforce. And I've heard that from some people who have left. And so I think that's good. And look, if you're not going to make it somewhere, I think it's good to know early on um, and uh, and have the ability to to make changes or start thinking about other things. Um, and so uh, I was always comfortable and, and doing well, but uh, the, it changes when you're up for share partnership, because uh, as we all know, that the, the, the pyramid has to get you know, more narrow. And uh, a lot of times that's where it happens. So being realistic, just in the terms of my odds and in what, in, in terms of what it takes, you know, I, I thought about, you know, is that, is that the life I want to have? Certainly. And after the great recession as well, um, the, 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 the calculus changed. It used to be at least in our practice area in, in my firm, Kirkland, the pie was expanding 
there's room for everybody because, you know, patent litigation was growing tremendously. The firm was growing, the group was growing. Um, and, you know, you got pay, paid extraordinarily well along the way. You know, when the Great Recession hit, uh, bonuses got slashed. You know, my first, my bonus in my first year as a partner was, I think, one third of the bonus the year before I made partner as an associate. And my review was the same. And the hours were the same. And so the, the, the money that you were making changed, the, the work uh, stayed the same or even increased, the pressure increased because I felt it was, it went from um, kind of a, how are you doing inquiry each year to a justify your existence uh, inquiry each year as firms were shedding tons of lawyers. And so um, when I looked at that existence on my way to share partnership, it wasn't really very attractive for me. So professionally, I had some concerns about stability in my life. Um, in IP, you know, especially as a patent litigator, I don't have a technical degree. And over, you know, at, at the point I left Kirkland Ellis, I had been there for 10 years. And over that period, I had been digging in to the technical aspects of cases and working with, you know, world-class experts. And I felt, you know, I'm very technically competent. I can get into semiconductors and software and all that kind of stuff. So from a skills perspective, I feel very comfortable. However, in, if you're looking to go in-house or anywhere really in your career, making that move in the world of patent litigation or in patents, there's always that prerequisite that people want to see, you know, a, a scientific degree. And I knew that that would always be, you know, an issue. So I was thinking, you know, to myself, okay, um, I, you know, maybe I should move for increased stability in the future. And how do I do that based on the fact that in the, in the area I'm at, um, just from kind of some of the gating issues I'll be in a disfavored bucket, even though I had, I thought, you know, exceptional experience and, and certainly the skill to do the job that I, that jobs that I would be looking for. So that was swirling around professionally. And then in terms of, um, and economically, and then in terms of just what I wanted to do, that played a big part too. Um, I remember the, the most, some of the most rewarding parts of, of my time at Kirkland were when friends of mine who had businesses that had, and had IP issues would come to me and want to talk about them and, you know, uh, potentially bring a case through Kirkland. And I would sit with them and, and usually I knew that, you know, that we were not the right match for them, either too expensive for a small company or um, the firm probably would not be interested in taking on a, a matter that might conflict them out of larger matters later for whatever reason it just wasn't a match but I'd sit with them anyway because they're my friends and do the intake I provide them you know with you know my thinking at the end of that on you know things that they might do and where they were what what kind of uh, uh, help they needed and um, and they were truly grateful and a lot of times that advice my, most of the time that advice worked out very well for them and a couple of them came back later and said, you know, how, how well it, it worked out for them and how much they appreciated the, my advice. And that was really gratifying to me, you know, in being a lawyer in, in, a, in these huge cases that we would do, you're, it's task focused and not goal focused a lot of the time, right? You're focused on this part of the case or this part of discovery, and it doesn't feel terribly productive a lot of the time. And that weighed on me, and um, I really, uh, I really enjoyed doing counseling that was meaningful and helping people solve important issues to them. And so I wanted to, when I decided it was time to make a move, I wanted to make a move towards 
a, a path that would um, allow me to do more of that, which ultimately I concluded meant going in-house. You know, the, you know, when a, when a business has a problem, the business people go to the legal people, maybe it's the legal people in their specific business or department, or maybe it's the corporate legal people, depending on how the company is structured. That those legal people go up the chain, maybe to the general counsel who goes to a senior partner at a firm who puts the work down to, you know, more junior partners who put the work down to associates. And at each transfer of information, you have something lost, right? Because you just tell the people what they need to know. You don't give them the full picture necessarily. And so by the time it gets to a junior partner or an associate, you know, you're, you're losing context and you're not being asked to help them really solve problems. You're asked, you're asked to be a, a, a part and, and in providing a service and doing a specific task. And so I wanted to get closer to solving problems, closer to solving problems of a business to feel like I was, you know, um, you know be, frankly, being more productive. So, um, Ultimately, I made the decision that uh, I did want to leave the firm and that my next move should be um, in-house in a role that allowed me uh, access to um, helping solve the issues of the business, um, certainly legal ones, but even better if there were practical business issues that I could contribute to solving. And so how did you, I mean, so as far as, let's say, financial risk goes or financial consequences, like how did you manage to minimize the risk of a transition? Because I think that would be probably a big financial change. You know, my understanding is going in-house conventionally, you're getting paid a lot less. So what, what put you in a position where you were comfortable with proceeding? Uh, saving money. <laughs> the short answer that. is, <laughs> that's the good I'm sorry? Stuff. That's the good stuff. I want to talk about that. So, so okay. how did you? So, so, I mean, like what was... Did you like when you first started out as uh, when you first started at you know at Deckert and then to Kirkland? Were you maxing your four hundred one k? Like what 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 do you mean when you're saying you were saving money? So I can't remember when I started. I don't think I did max out my four hundred one k initially. I I did before before law school. I was a legal assistant and I did put money away in a four hundred one k there, and I put some money away in a four hundred one k. In my early years, uh, I've always been the sole breadwinner of our family, and so living in San Francisco, uh, even though the salaries of young young lawyers were, uh, you know, talked about a lot and were were, were fairly high, um, still not a lot to to put away after you know uh, a San Francisco mortgage and um, and a family of four. So uh, it was later on in my career that I was able to really max out everything. I wish, I wish I had done it earlier. Uh, I think it, that is one thing that I would say, and I have said to my kids uh, and to young professionals is max it out as early as you possibly can and just learn to live within, you know, your means and, and set up your life so that you just never, you know, miss that money because it just goes automatically into your 401k. I think that there's such a big, there's such a huge effect of uh, starting to save early in your career, letting that compound over time, putting it away, you know, year after year after year. Uh, so that's, that's, I think, critical in terms of long-term stability, unless you're counting on, you know, an enormous payday somewhere down the road. And so like, how did you learn? I mean, so when did you really feel like you had 
a basic understanding of, of personal finance investing and a basic understanding of, hey, you know, here's the value of compounding. Like, was there a time frame in your career or was there a moment uh, that you really felt like, hey, like, I, I get this now. I get what this means. Yeah, so I I learned, I guess, a financial responsibility, I'll call it, from from uh, my mom. She we we I was raised by a single mom. Uh, she's a professional. She had uh, we I have four brothers and sisters, so I'm the youngest of five. Um, and you know, I would see her balancing her checkbook every month, and I would see her living within her means. Uh, you know, the 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 mentality was work hard and save your money. And the mentality also was, you know, if you if you don't have the money, then um, maybe we can't afford it, and we should wait as opposed to you know buy it on credit and pay it off later. So I think that was the, the kind of the foundation of, um, you know, my my financial uh, thinking, my financial understanding, financial responsibility. How did you? get the financial expertise and judgment that you have now? I mean, what were your, how did you learn that? I mean, is that something that you set up, you just learn on your own? Were there mentors you had? I mean, what did it take for you to get financial judgment? My, my mom, my early years, she was a professional. She's a nurse and uh, I have four brothers and sisters. So I'm the youngest of five. And so, um, uh, I would see her balancing her checkbook and um, I would hear things like uh, work hard and save your money on a regular basis. Uh, and um, the way that uh, she ran the family's finances was from a perspective of we do what we can and, and kind of from uh, from a perspective of living within your means as opposed to, um, you know, living on credit spending now and paying for it later. So, she always instilled in us, um, I think, those values which which have served me well. I've always, uh, you know, lived, you know, uh, absent, you know, you know, student loan, car, and house payment, you know, relatively debt free, which I think is is important, um, and that discipline is important. So that's that's kind of where I think I got the basis of um, my thinking about, you know, financial responsibility, going into investing later in life and thinking about that, um, you know, I've always been interested in, in finance. That's kind of what drew me away from businesses that were involved in finance. When I was at Clinton Ellis, I would trade um, Chinese micro caps in my personal account, just all a mess because that was fun. Chinese micro caps because our conflict at Clinton Ellis is particularly challenging. seems like we're, we are either, uh, you know, re- representing or adverse to everybody. So, um, things like Chinese microcaps were a place where uh, I could could actually do some trading without too much worry about that, and it was fun. And so I learned. Uh, I, I got an account at a place called TradeStation. They have a very sophisticated platform with with a really um, uh, robust uh, data available and software. Uh, they have a whole programming language for programming. Um, uh, models and uh, strategies. You can even automate them if you want. You can do extensive back testing and optimization. And so I re- got really into that just kind of out of uh, as a hobby and enjoyed it. Taught myself the their programming language and would make models and would make um, strategies. And um, and so I just kind of 
was drawn to that and, and did that for a number of years. Uh, what I learned from that is um, I was, you know, very good at making models that perform well in a directional market, uh, very good at making models that perform well in a flat market, but neither, neither of those things are particularly uh, <laughs> uh, 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 revolutionary or impressive. Anybody can really do that. But the trick is knowing which market you're in, right? And, uh, and, and, and that's the rub, uh, knowing what's going to happen in the future. And I think it's really difficult to do that um, from a kind of a technical analysis basis. And so I fell into more fundamental uh, analysis. And just for the viewers who don't understand those terms, perhaps technical analysis is more predicting the market movements in the future based on charting and chart patterns, whereas fundamental analysis is more looking at a particular company based on or, or even an industry based on the fundamental financial. So going through their financial statements, um, you know, thinking about what their particular revenue expenses, market opportunities going to be in the future. And so that's kind of what I got drawn to a little bit more um, as, as I went along, even though I do think, you know, the trading aspect is exciting and a lot of fun. You know, what did you discover about yourself? I mean, so I, you know, it, it's, it's interesting that you kind of realize, okay, there's this epistemological issue of understanding, you know, what mark you're in. What did you discover or, or what point did you discover? Because there's, there's something different about you, right? I mean, you, you've gone down a path that, you know, few lawyers have gone down. And so what was the point which you realized there was something different about yourself that, you know, you would set yourself down off down on a path that, few others were going to follow and if there was something different about your outlook and you know your your judgment and i guess the way that i put it for myself is you know i i discovered over time that you know being a buy a passive buy and hold investor seemed like the most obvious thing it just seems like the simplest and most obvious thing you just you just buy every month and um you buy what you can you don't overextend yourself but you buy as much as you can and over time, I discovered, okay, apparently there's any number of perfectly intelligent people, high income people who don't have that discipline and patience. And so that, that was something that I realized, okay, that's a competitive advantage. And that, that, that means something that's, that's something I can use in other domains. It's, it's something I can apply to other areas of my practice. Say, okay, what are ways in which I can start rolling a ball uh, it'll, it'll just like roll the snowball down a hill and it'll just grow and grow. So, I mean, that, that, that understanding myself, um, affected myself professionally. What about yourself? You know, what is it about these experiences that you, you know, you know, experiences like, you know, training these micro caps or, you know, working litigation plans that really taught yourself, Hey, there's something different about me and here's what I can do with it. That's a good question. I, I think I'd say the reason I'm doing what I'm doing now um is uh is because i moved in a direction of um of things that i like to do professionally and took action on them and then um when opportunities arose i you know i was there to take advantage of them uh, so what do i mean by that so when i was just when i decided to leave kirkland and ellis um, I, you know, I had to do a lot of soul searching. Uh, I guess I didn't have to, but I did because I wanted it to be a successful move. And I think that's part of the hardest thing of people when they're thinking about, do I stay 
at this firm or do I go to another firm or do I stay at any firm or go in house or what do I do next? Uh, for me, it's a difficult thing. It's a lot of uncertainty uh, and it's not fun for me to do that kind of soul searching to say, what do I want to do? What are my skills? What am I good at? What do I have to offer? Um, and so I did that at, at, um, at, at Kirkland. Part of what we talked about before was part of that. And then part of it was, what do I want to do, do with myself? And so I set out a couple things. And one of them was things in the financial industry. I thought that was really interesting subject matter. And so I, I told a couple partners that I trusted that I was interested to leave the firm and, um, you know, had a conversation about that with them about what I was looking to do. And, uh, you know, maybe nine months or a year later, one of them came to me and said, hey, I just talked to uh, somebody who's starting up this company, a guy in the legal industry, and it seems pretty interesting. And I, you know, I thought you might be interested in what they're doing. And so he put me in touch with a group called IPXI. Um, it was started by Ocean Tomo and Jim Malakowski there. And it was a group that was creating or trying to create a a patent licensing business using a financial markets model. So commoditizing licenses and having them on an exchange that can be bought and and sold as basically commodity instruments. I thought that was really interesting. And so I went and spoke with them. They had just gotten kind of their, uh, you know, startup funding and they had an impressive list of members that were, that were, that were their founding members. And um, I thought it'd be really exciting to, to join and help them think through a lot of the issues that still remained unsolved. And they seemed very uh, welcoming of that. So I ended up uh, joining them. Um, and then while I was there, um, you know, my conflicts from Kirkland fell away uh, for my personal trading. And so I quickly gravitated towards trading stocks and options of companies that were involved in patent litigation because of my expertise in that. And I felt like I had an edge over the market. And from that, I started, and this is just in my personal account, so small amounts. And from that, um, I started writing on the subject as well, um, posting articles. And um, one of those companies that I wrote about, I was put in touch with through a series of totally random events. And they happened to have a board member, uh, his name was Ashley Keller, uh, who was in Chicago. And they said, you should really meet him. And I did. And it turned out he was doing the same thing for a hedge fund that I was doing in my personal account, which was, you know, basically making investments based on calling the outcome of litigation. He was focused more broadly on litigation generally, including patent litigation. So we became uh, we became friends and got to um, comparing notes every couple of weeks. And uh, he started, he's the Keller and Gurchin Keller. And when he, he and Adam Gurchin started Gurchin Keller, he asked me if uh, I would be willing to do some consulting for them if they were seeing patent matters. And I said, of course. And then a few months into that, uh, they were seeing so much in the way of patents that they asked me to come and join them, which I, which I jumped at. And so part of it was was luck being in the right place at the right time, but that only came from my pursuing and doing things that I was interested in and, and not from a perspective of a job. Uh, it was from a perspective. I just want to do it. In fact, I remember sitting and writing my first article that I published and sitting on my couch at 11 o'clock at night, thinking to myself, you know, I could watch some TV or I could write this article and or I could go to bed 
you know, why am I doing this? And I answered myself because it's fun. And so I wrote the article and the rest, as they say, is history. Um, and I give that advice to, to young lawyers or, or to people now who are thinking about leaving firms. You know, as, as, um, as you may know, when you leave a firm, a lot of people who are still there reach out and, and to talk to you about, you know, uh, leaving and what it was like or perhaps for help. And I, I hear a lot of people tell me, oh, yeah, I'm, in, I'm interested in finance, too. And I'll ask them, well, what do you do? Like, what, what, what does that mean? And sometimes it just means that they're int- they like money, which everybody does. But um, but if they but if they're truly interested in in finance or startups or or whatever, there are ways without going to get clients in the space that you can go and participate, especially as an attorney. Right, you're a highly skilled professional, and there are certainly people that can use your help. And so, if it's business or if it's finance or if it's whatever, go find that community, go be a part of that community, and contribute to it. Whether it's providing pro bono services or, or, uh, you know, doing things on your, in your spare time, like writing articles, not necessarily law articles, but maybe you write articles in a trade publication that have a legal angle, but people appreciate that. Um, and, and it puts you, it puts you in the flow in with respect to something you're interested in. And so that's, you know, without realize without doing that intentionally to get the job I have now, um, that's what I did. I just went in the direction of what I like to do. And that puts you in the flow to be there when opportunities arise. Otherwise you just, you won't be there when there are opportunities and those opportunities are not going to seek you out. Yeah. I love that because that, that gets at this whole chicken and egg thing of, you know, well, because you were talking about earlier about this whole concept of creating value, you know, so, you you know, even as uh, you you can see someone say, okay, wow, they're uh, an associate or a partner in Kirkland. That's so impressive. And, but then when you, trace out that whole arc of, you know, well, the genesis of the issues that they're working on, you can see how attenuated it is and how much more task oriented it is. And so the conundrum that you recognize is, okay, well, then how do I create more value? And, you know, there's a sort of chicken and egg thing and putting yourself in position to get in a position where you can create more value. And, and so that's, you know, I think that's where financial independence comes in mind is, you know, like building yourself a foundation where you have some means and you have some control and then you can take these kind of, you know, these, I don't even think risk is the right word to use because, you know, what's a risk in writing an article? Um, like you're saying, it's just something you can do 11 o'clock at night instead of watching a movie. Um, but you put yourself in a position where, you know, you're, you're you know, kind of like buying these like call options, if you will, you know, just on, on, you know, potential opportunities. And I love that you're saying that, yes, that's something you can do now. I think it's analogous to financial independence. There's things you can do now. You can max out your 401k and that's important. But I think in parallel, I think it's really interesting to talk about, you know, what are the other forms of value you're creating for yourself uh, and ways to move in a step forward in that direction that you want to go in? Yeah, and it can be even, it doesn't even need to be coming in and, and, and writing articles somewhere like that. It can be something as simple as joining a, a, an industry association and getting to just get, being a part of the community, right? If you like if you like construction or, you know, startups or whatever, um, you know, participate in, in, in industry meetings, even as a, just an attendee and you'll see what the industry is talking about and you'll see the issues that they're facing. And then you can get involved in those. And, you know, especially as lawyers, you know, it'd be one thing if, if this was a, a podcast or a recording for, for high school graduates or students, because that you're in a much more limited 
uh, ability to help people, but as as lawyers, I mean, really have a, a great ability to help people um, think through legal issues, address legal issues, or even just apply that critical reasoning in a, in a perhaps non-legal way. So there's definitely opportunity. Um, and it's just important to go do something about it and recognize that it's not just about, you know, going and getting a client for the firm. That's not all that professional development is, especially personal professional development. It's about thinking, one, doing the step of thinking, where do you want to go? And then taking steps in that direction kind of presently and getting yourself in the spot where when things do opportunity, getting yourself in the spot where opportunities are and then so that you're there when they appear and can take advantage of them. It's very important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to see how that is like that sort of long term thinking, you know, that underlies financial judgment, financial independence, as well as career control and to me it seems like the two go hand in hand I and mean, i think that's you want financial dependence so that you can put yourself in a position where you can have interesting conversations with people you want work in things that you want and you do that in bits and pieces it's not some huge leap uh so we talked about you know i think i, I think of the people listening to this i think some people are maybe very early in their path towards financial independence and i think we talked about some of the basic things that they can do there to understand um you know, it's, it's important to hear for someone like yourself. I think, you know, they can hear from any number of places. Okay. Yes, you should save and invest, but I think to hear from someone who's actually done this, uh, I think is really important. You know, I think that's the purpose of this conversation is to make this more tangible for people. Um, but I found, you know, so even before I entered law school, I, I, I worked in finance briefly. It, it was, a, it was kind of a, a weird stint that I, is a conversation for another time as a futures broker. Uh, but in that time, I learned a lot about finance and taught myself a lot. And I didn't have any money to speak of, of course, as we noted, but I learned about what people who had money did. And so that was really helpful for me in thinking ahead and say, hey, you know, when I have money, here's the things I'm going to be doing and here's how I'm going to think about that. So I think it might also be helpful for someone who has the financial success that you do. You know, maybe you can tell a little more about, maybe we can get a glimpse into your world. And so um, just so people understand what they can aspire to and, and how they should be thinking about it. So uh, I myself, you know, I've taken the position that, you know, finances are one thing you can't ever really outsource. I, I just, I don't see a way where, um, you know, it's like your health. You can't outsource your health. And to me, your, your, your financial health is, is um, the same. And so is, is, you know, do you use advisor? You know, do you control your asset allocation? Can you speak a little about that so people who are maybe in a position where they've, you know, they've progressed a little bit down the field and they have some assets and they're trying to get a better sense of uh, understanding what to do with it. Can you, can you speak to those things? Sure. So yeah, most, most of my, um, well, actually pretty much all of my investments are self-directed um, at this point. I was, um, I was disappointed. It was an eye-opener for me, the recession that happened in 2008, 2009, you know, uh, I looked around and I saw how many financial advisors had pi- advised people to, to, to pull back exposure and, or to move out of certain stocks, um, you know, financial stocks or, or whatever during that time period. And if, if professionals can't see something that big and that structural coming, then really what's the value there in, in, in those people. And so I'm not, I'm not saying that no, nobody did a good job, but the people that I think kind of let's call them ordinary investors have access to, right? I'm sure, 
I'm sure family offices and hedge funds probably did maybe on balance better than, um, you know, the average Joe, but I don't have access to those people managing my portfolio. So um, I thought, well, you know, if, if there aren't people who can, can do that, then it was for something that big, then how can they get these little things right? And so for, so for, uh, my asset allocation and what I invest in, I take a pretty conservative approach, which is, you know, a lot of index funds. Um, I still reserve a little bit of my portfolio just to do kind of what I want with maybe some uh, some swing trading, meaning take advantages of, you know, medium term trends, industries that I think might be coming up in the future or businesses that I think are particularly good. You know, Google is one that I put in my portfolio a long time ago, just because I thought, Hey, these guys are basically a fire hydrant of cash, um, and they've been growing consistently. So I thought that was a good investment. Um, you know, that said, you know, something I didn't invest in for that same reason a long time ago, which I, I probably should have, was Amazon, right? I, and I quite frankly haven't understood Amazon's rise uh, as it has been because from a from a investor standpoint, if, if, a, if a unit of stock is the amount that that company is going to give you back over a period of time, you know, Google has way outperformed because they have been hugely profitable and provided tons of dividends where Amazon is not, or not nearly as much, but Amazon obviously is worth way more and has taken that, you know, ballistic ride. And as a, as a, as a factual matter, that was the better bet. But um, I take a little bit more conservative positions. So the ones, you know, so um I'll take some some bets like that on on you know big name well known um, companies and um, I like Warren Buffett a lot I like his thinking on investing reading Warren Buffett was I remember you know very helpful for me because he takes a very simple view of of investing the value school of investing doesn't require a ton of hyper technical analysis it requires a, a ton of diligence. Um, and uh, and self control, and uh, I really like that. So uh, I like the Berkshire Hathaway stock and their model. Um, but other than a couple little things like that, which are relatively safe bets as well, that are you know pretty uh, correlated to the market anyway. You know, a lot of index funds, uh, and um, and I and I you know like to leave them there long term. I don't try to call the tops and the bottoms um, because you know, statistically, they've shown over time, it's extraordinarily difficult to do. And I don't have anywhere near the amount of time necessary to even try to do that kind of stuff. And so um, I think for me, it's just recognizing that um, how, how difficult it is to do that kind of thing, to pick individual stock winners, certainly over the short term, um, and to, to, to just give a uh, broad-based long-term view and, 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 and let it be there uh, long-term. And I think, you know, Large cap U.S. large cap international markets are are fine places to do that. I'm a little overweight stocks just because of my age. You know, I, I've got the ability to, um, you know, to wait for a rebound. Stocks outperform bonds in the long term, uh, and so you know, even if the stock market goes down significantly, um, I don't need to access that money for for several decades. So or uh, let's not call it several anymore, maybe a couple. So, um, so, so with, with the time horizon that I have, I'm a little bit uh, over, probably overexposed to 
equities, you know, relatively relative to what, you know, people advise, but that's kind of my overall uh, strategy. Also for like the, for like having, you know, weird or esoteric stuff in my portfolio, I think I'm generally overexposed to that in my life because of my career, right? Mm -hmm. My, my job is, uh, and my pet, my previous job, uh, which, which, um, which I had was investing in, um, litigation outcomes. So that's uncorrelated to the market. It's highly variable, um, alternative investment. And so just having the interests in my, my current fund and held over from my previous work, um, I've got a lot of exposure to kind of alternative, uh, investments. So I don't feel the need to put, you know, much, if any more of that in my, you know, in my, you know, investment portfolio. Mm. And uh, that's very interesting and very helpful for people to understand, you know, what they can expect for themselves and very helpful to hear, uh, you know, how you're thinking about correlation and yeah, like the income you're getting from your work is already, um, you know, that there has, there's risks associated with that. So that's already a, a exposure to a certain kind of risk. So it's, it's good to de-risk by doing things that are, are uh, passive as well. Well, I'm mindful of uh, our time horizon here and I, I wanted to give you an opportunity for, for parting thoughts. Uh, and the one question I ask is, you know, what is it that you want people to learn from your path and what mistakes can they avoid because of the things you've learned, uh, you know, specifically focusing on financial independence? I'd say that is to start saving and save early, um, to understand what your goals are and to be realistic and always be learning aggressively in, in, in achieving those goals. 